may be seated. Like many of you, I've enjoyed the 360-degree panoramic view from the highest point of Pinnacle Mountain that's just west of Little Rock. Maybe you've hiked that mountain and you've, like me, you're standing there and you just turn around 360 degrees and you just enjoy so much the, the beautiful uh, view of the Arkansas River Valley from that high vantage point, and it's especially beautiful in the fall of the year. And as I have done that, uh, certain words pop into my mind to define that experience like spectacular. Uh, one uh, person said it's stunning, words like that. Well, today we're doing a similar thing, though I'm not taking you on a hike up Pinnacle Mountain, but that might not be a bad thing to do on the Lord's Day, to enjoy His creation. But we'll be looking at a, or taking a 360 degree view of the kingdom of God on this earth from the vantage point of the parable of the Good Samaritan. And what I want to ask us to consider is what word might capture our experience. And I would suggest to you that the one word is mercy. Mercy that we've already read about, we've already sung about, and we've already talked about. Because the parable of the Good Samaritan is Jesus teaching that it takes mercy to get into the kingdom. And then for those who are in the kingdom, they have both the motive and the ability then to show mercy. We've been shown mercy and gathered in, and naturally we show mercy uh, to others. And in fact, today our outline is very simple. Our outline really are the two questions that this lawyer asks. The first question in verse 25, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life. And then the second question is in verse 29, who is my neighbor? And so we'll look at those two uh, questions in particular today. It takes mercy to get into the kingdom, and then for those who are in the kingdom, we are to show mercy to others. That's our outline today. So let's read the text. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 10. We'll read uh, from verse 25 down to verse 37, Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So like a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. 
But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay, I will repay you when I come by. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You, Tim, you, covenant people, you, lawyer, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, this text is difficult for me and perhaps for those others who are here. For it points out just how merciless I am. And so today, would you speak to our hearts, show us the supreme expression of mercy that we have received that has brought us into your kingdom. And then, Father, show us your demand that we would be merciful to others, irrespective of what group they're in, what color they are, what status they have obtained, what nationality or ethnicity in which they may have been born. And so we would ask this in Jesus' name, for his sake and for the good of your church, for our own health, spiritually, we pray in Jesus' name. The demand to receive uh, mercy. The parable of Good Samaritan is is probably one of the most uh, familiar and popular parables, maybe second only to the parable of the prodigal son. And so even as I was reading that story, you probably really didn't even have to read along with me. You just knew the story as so many uh, people do. And and here we find that, that the parable begins with this lawyer asking a question about eternal life. And we might think, well, wait a minute. I thought, This parable was about showing mercy to our neighbors. So lots of people look at this parable and they forget the first part. They they forget verses 25 through 29 and just focus on the story of the Good Samaritan itself. But I would suggest to you that we really can't understand this beautiful, heartwarming story of the Good Samaritan unless we understand what caused Jesus to give this story in the first place. And what caused Jesus to give this story in the first place is this lawyer asking, what does it take to have eternal life? And so we see in verses 25 through 29, Jesus shows the lawyer and he shows us that it takes receiving mercy to get into the kingdom. It takes receiving the merciful work of Jesus and his redemption by faith to get into the kingdom. Well, in verse 25, we're introduced to this lawyer. Who was he? He was a religious authority, a scholar, a scribe. Think of him as a theologian, you know, one who has all the, all the Bible uh, answers. And also in verse 25, we find something interesting because we, we learn about this lawyer's motive. Why, why did he ask 
this question about inheriting eternal life. And, and, and I would commend to you that the question this theologian asks is probably the most important question anyone can ask. The rich young ruler asks it. Many of us here today, including myself, have asked it. Maybe some of you here today are thinking about asking it. It is a profound question, and to, to not answer it correctly has really some very severe eternal consequences, doesn't it? But why did the lawyer, why did this theologian ask this most profound question of Jesus? Did he really want Jesus' help? In answering this question, verse 25, the lawyer said, I'm asking this question because I want to test Jesus. Now, as a theologian, I would think, and I would stand on good ground thinking this, that the, that the theologian already had an answer to that question. He's a theologian. He's the Bible answer man. And what might his answer be? His answer that would reflect the, the doctrine of the day in Judaism. The lawyer's answer probably was something like this. I believe that one gets into the kingdom of God or one inherits eternal life. By the way, inheriting eternal life and, and gaining entrance into the kingdom really mean the same thing in this parable. That, that one has that, one has eternal life because one has obeyed the law of God, the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civic law, all of the, the law in the Old Testament according to the rabbinical tradition after the tradition of the elders. So these guys took the Ten Commandments and they put about 960 other commandments with them. So if you do the 960, you'll probably have done the Ten. And by the way, these people believe, these Pharisees, including the lawyer, Though they might have had a good intention, they believed that obeying the law was merely conforming externally to the letter of the law, and they simply did not deal with the spirit of the law. And of course, Jesus' sermon on the Sermon on the Mount rebukes them for that very thing, that one who truly obeys the law, first and foremost, obeys it in the heart, fulfills the spirit of the law. And so what this lawyer wanted to do was to see how Jesus lined up with the accepted doctrine about inheriting eternal life of the day. And so he tested Jesus. And you know as well as I do, if you read the New Testament, if you read the Gospels, you know that the Pharisees were all about trying to trap Jesus in some doctrinal error or some theological inconsistency so they could discredit him. And I think that was the man's motive seeking to trap Jesus to discredit him. Well, how did Jesus answer? How does Jesus usually answer a question? With a question. <laughs> I personally find that challenging when I ask a question and then the person answers me with a question, but Jesus does it better than anyone else, right? And so the man asks a simple question and Jesus actually answers by asking two additional questions. What is written in the law, verse 26? And then Jesus follows up with a second question that I have paraphrased like this. Since you are an expert in the law, Mr. Lawyer, and we both agree that the answer to your question about eternal life is contained in the law, then, Mr. Expert, I want you 
to tell me, according to your reading or understanding of the law, what is the answer? Well, how did the lawyer respond to this? The lawyer responded in verse 28, or verse 27, rather. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. Have you heard that before? Jesus summarized the Ten Commandments this very way in Matthew chapter 22. And, and let me summarize the summary of the Ten Commandments. Perfect love for God and perfect love for one's neighbor. And then Jesus in verse 20. Um, in verse 28 says this, he commends the lawyer, you have answered correctly, good job. And then what does Jesus do? In light of, of this lawyer's answer and commending him, in verse 28, these words, do this. In other words, lawyer, love God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly, do this. And you will live. You will have eternal life. Wow. So, what did the lawyer do? How did he respond to this standard that Jesus has set and this command that Jesus had uh, given? He was setting a trap for Jesus and the lawyer wound up trapping himself. Because we read... In verse 29, but the lawyer desiring to justify himself. In other words, the lawyer wanted to show that he was right standing before the law of God. But boy, did he ever have a really big problem in proving that. Now, this is my experience. When, when I am thinking about the law of God in terms of you or someone else, I I, I, I typically apply the law with its full scope. In other words, I don't hold anything back with God's law as I apply it to others. And I also apply the law generally, this is my natural inclination, with full force. I don't hold anything back. I want God's law to do its work fully. So typically, when we apply the law to someone else, we give them the whole law, and we want it to really come down heavy on them. But when I apply the law to myself, I want to narrow the scope of the law because there are some parts of the law I know that I don't keep, and I just simply want to ignore those. And then what I do is that I actually try to minimize the law the parts I think I might be able to keep, I might minimize them in such a way that I actually they become manageable. And so I lessen the force. I narrow the scope and I lessen the force. Now I think that's what we do just kind of naturally. We want the law to go forth on other people. But boy, when it comes upon us, we're trying to justify ourselves just like this lawyer did. He did the same thing. He asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? So he was dealing, that, that, that question tells us that he was ignoring the weightier part of the law, love God perfectly. Maybe he was hoping that if he didn't mention it, Jesus would forget about it. 
I think he knew deep down in his heart, there, even though he was a Pharisee, he probably understood that no Pharisee could claim perfect love for God. And so he narrowed the scope. He ignored that law. And then what does he do? With the lesser matter of the law, he tries to lessen it. He, he tries to reduce it, to minimize it, to a level that he could manage Who is my neighbor? Asking that question implies some are my neighbor and some are not my neighbor. Do you begin to see what this lawyer was trying to do in ignoring the law to narrow its scope and redefining the standard to make it manageable for him? But I would suggest to you that this question, who is my neighbor, really is a reasonable question because there Palestine was was along the, one of the major trade routes of the ancient world. And there were people from all over the world traveling through Palestine, staying over in Palestine. So the Jews were constantly coming up against people, Greeks and, and Romans, and people from all over the world, non-Jews, irreligious people. And, of course, they were coming up against those, those nasty, half-breed Samaritans that they really didn't want to deal with at all. And so his question, who is my neighbor, I think shows the prejudice of the day of the Jew excluding those that were not Jews. And what this lawyer was trying to do was to say that if somebody is in my group, they're my neighbor, but if they're not in my group, they're not my neighbor So who might be in the lawyer's group? His family, his buddies, and other Jews. And everyone else was outside the group. And those outside the group, he did not have to be neighborly towards. Huh. Jesus, I can keep that. You see what the lawyer was doing? Basing his entrance into heaven, basing his receiving inheriting eternal life on his own ability to keep the law, which he has ignored in part and lessened <laughs> in another part. And here's the problem with it. You ready for the problem? Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 through 47, Jesus in that text defines the neighbor. He sets the standard. And Jesus said, your neighbor can be your enemy if you have an enemy. Now, to the lawyer, that was unthinkable. But neighbor includes enemy in Jesus' economy. And then to make matters even worse for the lawyer, in verse 48, Jesus said, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. In other words, if you really want to keep the law, not only love the people you love, but love the people that you hate or hate you. Because that's the standard. Perfect love for God, perfect love for one's neighbor. The large attempt to justify himself, ignoring portions of the law he couldn't keep, reducing other portions of the law he thought he could make manageable, simply show that he had failed. And so after telling the story, Jesus asked the lawyer in verse 36, 
which of the three passerbys was neighborly to the man in need? Verse 37, he answered correctly, the one who showed mercy. The one who showed mercy would be one that would not be in the lawyer's group. Did you catch that? The Samaritan. And I'm sure the lawyer was thinking, what a weird twist to this story. Because the lawyer would think that the priest and the Levite would be the ones that would be in the kingdom. But here Jesus is saying, they don't demonstrate kingdom living. It's the one that you think lawyers outside the kingdom that really demonstrates kingdom living. He showed mercy. He was neighborly to one that is in need. And all of this Jesus is bringing to this point. Being in the kingdom is not a matter of one's ethnicity or birth, one's personal performance, one's ability ability to keep the law. It is by grace through faith in Christ That's what brings one into the kingdom, not personal merit. And this lawyer was trying to justify himself based on his own obedience. And he was unsuccessful. But there is one who was successful as the justifier, and it's Jesus. We must be right before the law. And how can we be right before the law when we know that we have no chance to keep it? It's because there is one who kept it perfectly. Jesus perfectly obeyed every jot, every tittle that is in the law of God. And he mercifully credits this perfect record to us in justification. He justifies us. Another part of justification is the mercy of Jesus paying for all of our sin, wiping the slate clean, removing our guilt. And the point that I want us to see here, this is just the doctrine of justification, is Jesus, before he really gives the story of the Good Samaritan, he deals with what it takes to get into the kingdom to begin with. And it's mercy. And by faith, believing in Christ and receiving his mercy. That's what gets us into the kingdom. Now, the second part is the demand to show mercy. Mercy is demanded to get into the kingdom, and then those that are in the kingdom, mercy is demanded in how we live. Good Samaritan stories are all around. You know, you hear someone's in a restaurant, and someone's choking, and so a Good Samaritan comes up and does a Heimlich maneuver, or maybe someone's having a heart attack, and someone comes up and administers CPR. I saw a news report where apparently an individual been in a motor vehicle accident, and his car was turned upside down, and, and he was trapped, and I don't know how many, but just a bunch of guys came up, good Samaritans, and they all got together and pushed that car and uprighted it. And the guy was just sitting there. <laughs> it was a convertible, and he was just kind of sitting there shaking. But, uh, you know, maybe he was bruised and battered, but he was basically okay. So we are very familiar with Good Samaritan stories. It's just something that's, that's part of life. And it was true in Jesus' day. So Jesus uses kind of a slice of life that most people could identify with, someone coming and helping someone else, the, the whole Good Samaritan thing. And he tells this story. We don't know if the story's true or not. That's not the point. But it was a real-life situation that really spoke. Now, let's look first at the, ge- the geography of this, this story. Jerusalem sits high up, 
about 33,000 uh, feet above Jericho. And so over 17 miles, there's a 3,300, 3, not 33,000, that would be a really high city. Uh, 3,300, and Jerusalem's lofty, but not that much. Uh, 3,300 feet elevation change in 17 miles. So it's a pretty rugged trip. And in, in the day, uh, Dr. Kistemacher quotes a, a source that called it the path of blood. It was rugged, it was difficult, it was dangerous. In verses 30 through 35, Jesus gives this story of the Good Samaritan. And so we just want to look at the, at the characters just, just briefly and want to make some comments about them. But here's the man coming from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he is accosted by these robbers. Now what's interesting is that we do not know anything about this man except that he was on the Jericho road coming down from Jerusalem to Jericho. We don't know uh, where he lived. We don't know what he was doing in Jerusalem. We don't know if he was a Jew or a Gentile. We don't know what social or economic status he, he might have have uh, been a part of. We don't know anything about this man except that he was, he was robbed, he was beaten, he was stripped, and he was left for dead along the side of the road. He represents a person who has a desperate need, one in need of mercy. And then this priest comes along. This is where it really gets tough for me. Here, here's this priest, not that I'm a priest in the sense this guy was a priest, but he's kind of in the clergy class, isn't he? And I am that. So we have this priest that's coming along, a religious leader, served in the temple, and he's coming from Jerusalem, probably going home. So he would be a very respected man. By the way, uh, you know, Cabot is kind of a bedroom community for Little Rock. Well, Jericho was a kind of a bedroom community for Jerusalem. And so some of these religious workers, the priest and the Levi, probably had a home in Jericho so they could get out of the big city and get some rest. And so this pious man comes along. Then there's a Levite who comes along. Levite's role is subordinate to the priest, but still part of the clergy, kind of the professional religious worker of the day. And these two guys are traveling home from Jerusalem to Jericho, probably having fulfilled their work in, in the temple. So they've been to church, and now they're going home, probably to watch NFL football at the fall of the year. What do they do? Each of them, in turn, the priest first, then the Levite, come, come upon this desperate man, half dead, along the side of the road. And their response is shocking. They move to the other side of the road. They don't even take a stick and go over and poke the guy to see if he was conscious. Uh, they just completely avoided him. And this is really peculiar for the priest because... The priest is really identified with God showing mercy to his people through the sacrificial system, which was a priestly function. And more, the priest was kind of a public health official because he would, he would judge someone being clean or unclean because of various skin and disease-type situations. And then the Levite, the Levites were charged with almsgiving to the poor, both of these guys. Their very offices really dictated for them to show mercy to those in need. And they avoided this guy. What accounts for their, their lack of, of mercy and care? 
were they concerned about the fact that if he's dead and they touch that dead body, they would be unclean and could not fulfill their religious duty? Could it be that they feared this was a trap? Maybe they would get robbed when they would go to give aid to this fellow? Maybe they just simply didn't want to get involved. You know, if we go here, we've got to do this, got to spend this amount of money. Got to pay all our, it takes us all day to get this guy taken care of, and we just don't have time to do that. We're tired. We've been at church. Hopefully you won't say that after today. Maybe they were just simply callous towards needs. Maybe they felt like, hey, wait a minute, I'm a priest, I'm a Levite. We have this high status in the community, and stooping down low to help this guy, that is well beneath our status. We don't really know what their motives were. What we do know is that the very ones that everybody would say should have been the one to stop give mercy failed to do so. And they pass to the other side. Then the unlikely hero of the story comes, the Samaritan. The Jews hated the Samaritans, believed that they were half-breeds. They were intermarried when Assyria conquered the northern kingdom back in 722. They were despised by the Jews, but the Samaritans despised the Jews as well. So there was mutual contempt on both sides. Remember Jesus in John 4 when he went and encountered the woman at the well in, in Samaria That was shocking to the Jews because Jews would not even set foot in the territory of Samaria because they hated them so much. And so here Jesus uses the epitome of one being outside the group to actually to be the one to demonstrate what true kingdom life uh, looks like. And so the Samaritan comes across the man. He went to him. He did not avoid him. He touched the man. He bandaged his wounds. He took oil and wine to soothe and and maybe to uh, be an anesthetic uh, to those wounds. He cared for him. Then he put him on his donkey, inferring that the Samaritan walked so this wounded man could walk. Took him to an inn and got him a room, paid, gave money in advance to cover his expenses until he came back. And then he said, innkeeper, anything above what I've given you, is owed for this man's care. I will pay for it in full. Look at all that was sacrificed. Time, personal safety, money. All for a total stranger. The Samaritan didn't know if he was in his group or not in his group. All the Samaritan knew was one of those horrible Jews that he was helping. The point is, he didn't ask the question, who is my neighbor? He was neighborly to someone in need. So the story is told, verse 36, how does the lawyer respond? Notice how Jesus changes the question. The lawyer said, who is my neighbor? Jesus changes the question, who proved to be neighborly to this half-dead man? And that really is the question of the parable. That's the question that is before you and me uh, today. We need to see that Jesus is not saying, you've got to figure out if he's your neighbor before you are neighborly. No, Jesus says, be neighborly. And don't even think about the question, is he in my group? And the kicker of the entire parable is Jesus saying, you go do likewise to this lawyer. Don't let, Jesus is saying, don't let the question about 
who is my neighbor, keep you from being neighborly. Here's this thing of the parable. A churchgoer. This is a parable based after this parable. A churchgoer. Maybe a PCA pastor or maybe a member of the PCA church has been to worship and he or she gets in the car to drive home because they're going home to eat a lunch that they had prepared Saturday so they could not work on Sunday. And then they're going to spend the rest of the day in meditation and prayer because that's what churchgoers do. And on the way home, they pass an elderly lady who is standing out by her car who has a flat tire in, in need. It's hot. And the churchgoer says, Oh, I cannot stop. I cannot work on the Sabbath. And to get out and change that tire would be violating Sabbath, strict Sabbatarian view of being a churchgoer. And I've got to get home to pray. I've got to get home to meditate upon God's word. And so the churchgoer drives right by and leaves that little elderly lady with a flat tire. An atheist then comes up. And the atheist whips his car on the side of the road, stops, gets out, and says, My goodness, let me help you. So he, he puts the spare tire on, and then he follows the lady to the tire store, and he pays for the tire repair and makes sure that the tire, tire store put the tire back on properly so she could go about her business. And then the atheist gives this lady his phone number and says, Listen, ma'am, if there's anything that you ever need, you call me. And I will be there for you. Who in this parable showed mercy who was neighborly maybe your group is conservative Christianity and maybe if there's a car along the side of the road they don't have the right bumper sticker you're not going to stop and help them maybe your group is marriages that are along the biblical line of marriage between a man and a woman. And if it's a same-sex couple, they may have a great need, but there's no way in the world you're going to get your hands dirty with a same-sex couple and help them. Maybe it's a refugee. And you're not going to help that refugee. They're taking over our country. Maybe it's someone of a different color. Maybe it's someone of a different ethnicity. Maybe it's someone that is outside your group and you think and I think that we have upheld the law by excluding some from the category of neighbor so we can lessen the law thinking we've obeyed the law see this this parable stings if you really think about it because if it's a poor person, if it's a refugee, if it's a whole host of people in our culture today that we care not to associate with, Jesus is saying, the question is not who is my neighbor. 
but will I be neighborly to one in need irrespective of who they are or what they represent? And I think a good bit of the problems that we face in this country is because the church has not been merciful and neighborly to those who are in need. And I want us to hear Jesus' words. The unlikely hero, the Samaritan, showed mercy to a man he did not know, to a man who was, could have, for all he knew, could have been his enemy. But he showed mercy. And Jesus said, you go do likewise. Let us pray. Our Father, I pray that you would forgive us, forgive me for living mercilessly in the kingdom after all the mercy that we have received from you. We have the motive to show mercy. You've changed our heart. We have the ability to show mercy. And sometimes the, the irreligious in our culture puts us to shame in showing mercy to the needy. And we repent of that. And, oh, God, may, may you so work in us that, that we would really set the pace in what it means not to determine who is my neighbor, but to forget about that question but that we would set the pace, that we would define what it means to be neighborly to one who is in need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.